If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 613. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, buy my courses there. That's how you keep this podcast free of charge. I've got 20 available for purchase. You want to get them. They're great. Also, click on the support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can click on the shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And, of course, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. That helps people know you're listening to it. Comment at the YouTube channel. It helps the algorithm. All those things help get more people interested in the show. And, of course, that's the ultimate objective. We want more listeners. And send me those listener-generated episode suggestions, right? I did two last week. So you could get in lights on the Brian McClanahan Show simply by sending me those show suggestions. All right. Today is an interesting day because... This was a challenge that was levied against me, just like it been done before on social media. So there is a historian, quote-unquote, named Kevin Levin. I often call him Kevin Levine. He doesn't know I'm trolling him the whole time I do it. I know I'm spelling his name incorrectly. I do it to be funny, and I do it because there's a Bruce Levine who is almost indistinguishable from Kevin Levin. In fact, Bruce Levine was saying the things that Kevin Levin is saying in his book that's supposed to be groundbreaking years before Kevin Levin said them. So they almost have the exact same last name. So it's Kevin Levine and Bruce Levin, right? I mean, it's interchangeable. The two could just be interchangeable. Swap them around. You got the same guy. So anyways, that's why I do it. I do it to be funny. He doesn't get it. Now, he might listen to this, and now he'll finally know the joke's been on him the whole time. But I do it on purpose. So anyways, you've got Kevin Levin who's written a book, uh, Searching for Black Confederates. Now, Levin has been a darling of the Twitter historian brigade for a long time. He spends a lot of time on Twitter running his mouth. He's a leftist. He's a Yankee leftist, which is worse. He's a Yankee leftist. Uh, He doesn't have a PhD. uh, I believe he taught in high schools. I don't know what he's done. Um, I don't even know if he has a master's degree. He might. I haven't looked into his credentials. But anyways... That doesn't mean anything. I don't. I mean, I don't hold that against people when they aren't credentialed. In fact, a lot of times, good historians are not credentialed. But the funny thing is, he tries to hold things against me. He'll say things like, "Well, I have a peer-reviewed book, and you don't." Okay, so I made a point to call his book a nonsense piece of garbage. Now, I didn't use those terms on Twitter, but I did say that it's based on straw man fallacies and semantics. And he said, clearly you haven't read my book, and I'll come on your podcast anytime and talk about it. Well, I don't have guests on my podcast, but you know what I'll do for old Kevin Levin? I decided that I would review it because I have read his book. And so this is my response to him that I haven't read his book. You see, this happened once before. Kevin Cruz, who is a historian at Princeton, 
said something that I challenged. Of course, I can't say anything on Kevin Cruz's account anymore because he's a pansy and he blocked me. But here's the thing. Uh, Kevin Cruz uh, said, one of his commenters said, well, why doesn't uh, this guy give an erudite review of David Blight's race reunion? So I did. I mean, these people don't think we read any of this stuff. In fact, I will admit, I'd rather read the garbage I don't like than the stuff I do like oftentimes because I like to know what the morons on the other side are saying. So, I'm going to review Kevin Levin's Searching for Black Confederates. And I'm going to make some general statements about it and then point out some of the stupid things in the book. First and foremost, Levin prides himself on the fact this is a peer-reviewed book from a major university press. And it is. It's published by UNC Press. Now, what does peer review actually mean? It means that a bunch of other people who have credentials, PhDs generally, read the manuscript supposedly and made suggestions. But that isn't really what happens oftentimes. The book is sent out by these university presses. Some people will get it and say, eh, and they'll look at it. If it's in line with what they think, then they'll simply send back a few suggestions, maybe something here and there, and that's that. In fact, if you go into his acknowledgments in this book, you see, when I go and, I, and somebody challenges me, I'll take apart the book with a surgical strike. So you go into his acknowledgments, and you know who he cites as the most important person to review his manuscript? Andy Hall, who has a website entitled Dead Confederates. Now, Andy Hall has the same credentials as Kevin Levin. In other words, he's a blogger, just like Kevin Levin was a blogger. He's been blogging for about 15 years on this topic. And in fact, I'll get to that in a minute, it's the most embarrassing part Embarrassing part of this particular book is that fact, and, and I'll explain why. So the major, uh, the major scholarly input for the chapters that mattered the most was a blogger. Now, I'm not saying Andy Hall can't go out and do research and come up with things. In fact, on his site, Dead Confederates, he spends a lot of time. He's from Texas, and so he's one of these guys, one of these Southerners, who feels guilty about having Confederate ancestors, who feels guilty about the Confederacy. So he's going to go out and show that he knows it's all about slavery, and there's no black Confederates and all these kind of things. He's going to prove it to all these neo-Confederates. So that's the guy that was helping Kevin Levin with the chapters that matter the most in the book. Okay, It's laughable on its face. He critiques me for not having published with the university press. Why would I want to? I could have done that. I didn't want to. So the fact is, uh, Levin already has that strike against him. So it, just because it's with the university press and he has a peer-reviewed book really doesn't mean a whole lot. A lot of people get those, and they're still garbage. Second thing, you go through and you look at his bibliography. It's what you would call a padded bibliography. Okay, what do I mean by that? I've seen a lot of academic papers. I've spent a lot of time in, in academic circles. And a padded bibliography means that you throw a whole bunch of garbage in there that you don't cite, you never really consulted, you never did anything with, to make it look like you're learned and you read all these sources. You went to all these manuscript sources and you found all this stuff. When you go through his notes, Kevin Levin cites secondary sources almost the entire time. Again, in the chapters that really matter. Now, in the chapters where he goes after the SCV and the... And the Confederate veterans, yeah, he goes out and reads Confederate veteran magazines and some newspapers, and he cites those things. But in the chapters that really matter, when he says searching for black Confederates, which would make you think that he's going to go out and try to find if any of these Confederates, were, any of these black guys are really true Confederates, you know what he cites? Secondary sources. 
almost the entire time. So the book is not really based on any primary research. It's based on secondary sources that went out and did some research that in some cases, as Shane Anderson pointed out in a piece at the Abbeville Institute a couple of weeks ago, are flawed. So he's using flawed secondary sources to create a flawed book. Right? So this is the problem. Kevin Levin has a patabiliography with very little primary research. In fact, I said the embarrassing thing. If you go to one of the chapters, I think about half the notes are citing himself in blog posts that he wrote in different places. This is what Kevin Levin does. And he calls this a scholarly book. This is scholarly. You see, your books are garbage because you published with popular... Look at the titles of your books, and they're garbage. But look at mine. It's published at UNC, and I've got these people saying it's good. I've been honored with an award, and what have you done? Well, I've sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and you haven't. And that's because my books are actually good, and yours actually stinks. But anyways, that's a whole other point. whole other topic, I should say. So his book is... Um, Flawed from the beginning, if, this, if he was one of my students, and of course he could be, because if he wanted an advanced degree, then he has to go get it from PhDs. So essentially he could be one of my students. This book would be butchered with red ink if this was a manuscript that I got a hold of. It would be awful. I mean, it, it would not even make it out of the drafting stage. I'd tell him to go back and get to work. Because essentially it's a polemic. Anytime you start with a phrase, we're going to go after the neo-confederates. He uses it throughout the book. Neo-confederates. You know it's a polemic. The Dew book, Apostles of Disunion, is the exact same thing. Now, Dew's book actually has more primary research in it than Kevin Levin ever thought of doing. But it certainly is a polemic. And this book is a polemic. It's an attack on the SCV, the UDC, and any other quote-unquote neo-Confederate groups out there. In fact, the chapters where he really goes, where he cites himself over and over again, he's going after... People like H.K. Edgerton, he goes after the Kennedy brothers, he goes after the SCV, he goes after some other websites, some bloggers that write things that he thinks are, are laughable and ludicrous, even while admitting, and this is where the straw man comes in, that most of these sites don't get a whole lot of traction. Some people cite them, and he does put up the SCV as an example of where a lot of these quote-unquote myths come from. And he calls this the, mo the Civil War's most persistent myth is the myth of black Confederates. Now, you go to the SCP website, and there it is. They talk about black Confederates. What they don't say, and this is where Levin is playing fast and loose with semantics and why I say it's a straw man argument, what they don't say is that these people are recognized soldiers. He called, the SCV calls them black confederates. Now, I will say that some of this stuff has been trumped up and is just laughable on its face that there were you know, re full regiments of confederate soldiers. That, that didn't exist. Of black confederate soldiers. That didn't exist. Right? That wasn't there. But I will say there were thousands of black confederates. Now, were they officially recognized soldiers? Absolutely not. The confederate, army, uh, confederate government wasn't going to do that. It didn't mean that these people didn't serve in a military capacity. And I've said this before on this podcast, what you could call a soldier today, what we, how we define a soldier today, was something that these people were doing. right? So you had this support group. You had cooks, teamsters, people that would do labor. This is exactly what United States colored troops were doing in the early stages before they were put on the front lines, because you know why? White northerners were tired of getting blown apart, so they stuck the former slaves out there, or free blacks out there, to go do it for them. And, uh, I mean, that becomes an important part of the war. There's no doubt about that. 
But the fact is, to say these people weren't doing soldierly, in fact, Levin even admits, even, even admits they were doing soldierly things, but you can't call them soldiers because the Confederate government didn't call them soldiers. So were they soldiers or were they not soldiers? I mean, this is where the semantics, this is why it's a straw man book based on semantics and why it's complete garbage. And the other thing it is, is a padded polemic. Okay, so those general observations out of the way. It's only 177 pages long, by the way. And again, you would think something that's going to be the definitive source on black Confederates would, would actually get out and look at all these different people that have been called black Confederates and go out and really dig into it. Were these people, what, what kind of stuff were they doing? Now, if the evidence isn't there, if there's nothing there, you should say it. And in some cases, Levin does say that. Well, this person said he was a Confederate um, and he was showed up reunions, but you can't really find anything. And the SCV, the, I'm sorry, the, the Confederate Veteran Magazine was critical of this. Okay, that's fine. I mean, say it. But if you're going to go out and you're going to make some of these some of these blanket assertions, you better have some primary evidence to back it up. And he doesn't do that very well. That's a major problem with the book. All right, so I'm going to go through because I highlighted some things that I can play off on some of his quotations here. So we're going to start. This is in chapter one. First of all, he says that camp slaves cannot be considered soldiers because they're slaves. Now, my question to Levin would be this. Is a conscript, is a conscript, a draftee, do they have free will to be in the army? Essentially, his position is they don't have free will to be in the army, so they can't be considered a soldier because they're not free. So what is a conscript? This is a, an intro. I mean, you, you have to think about that now. What is a conscript? A conscript is a non-free entity. And if they try to leave, they're going to be court-martialed. They're, they could be shot for desertion just like anybody else. So they're not really free. They didn't sign up to go fight, but they were dragged into the army anyways. And there were almost 800,000 conscripts in the Union Army during the war, right? Almost 800,000 conscripts. So are those people free? Were they free to make that decision? What about all the people that were put into the army with a commutation fee in the North? You see, he creates a false dichotomy, too, that the South is like this, but the North was something else. Now, I know that's not the point of the book, but reading it, this is the impression you would get. Well, look at these camp slaves. They're conscripts. They can't be soldiers. But he doesn't even play it well. I mean, at the other, on the other hand, you had all kinds of people in the Union Army that were conscripts, too. Uh, or they were slaves, they can't be soldiers. They had a lot of people, that were conscripts in the Union military, and for years we've talked about conscripts being slaves, essentially, to the army, because that's what they are. It's not free. You're not free to leave. You didn't freely join. You, don't, you can't do what you want. You're cannon fodder. Your, your body and your person are owned by the government, and they can tell you to die. Now, is that a free person? Of course not. But this is exactly what the, the impression that you get from reading this book that somehow the North had all this free stuff out there and the South was just dragging people in. Because he says, well, you know, the South had the first conscription law, too. He points this out. The South wasn't free. These people didn't believe in freedom. They have conscript law and they're, they're bringing slaves in. 800,000 conscripts nearly in the North. All right, so we'll just put that out there. Now, let me read some of these highlighted areas because I find it to be very funny. So this is from the first... Uh, chapter, page 28. Whatever else was experienced while in camp, on the march, and even on the battlefield, the boundaries of the relationship between master and slave was built on and reinforced over time through violence. However, even within a relationship that was defined through coercion, 
Moments of mutual affection and caring were possible. So essentially, what I want to say about that is a lot of the problem with the book. He doesn't cite stuff that he says like he doesn't he doesn't cite where you know a real academic making a statement like that that the relationship was reinforced and built on violence. Well, this is in stark contrast to say Genovese or Fogel and Engerman. So if you want to make that assertion, fine, but you better have a commentary notes. The only commentary ever put in his notes was from Fremantle's description of, of black Confederates, because that's what they were. Uh, and he says, that, you know, these people could have made good soldiers, so saying they're not soldiers, but they're black Confederates. I mean, so what are they? What are they not? I understand the semantics matter, and the, the term matters even to people at the time, saying these people are you know, doing servant work. Okay. Uh, would Horace King be a black confederate? He didn't support the cause. He wasn't in favor of secession, but he certainly supplied a lot of lumber to the Confederacy and, and to build the CSS Jackson. Um, he was working for the Confederate state of Alabama, the Confederate government, essentially. So, I mean, was he a black confederate? Eh, I mean, okay, maybe, maybe not. These are things that you have to... But see, confederate can be anybody that supports the cause. This is exactly what the Republican Party insisted in the loyalty oath. If you could say you never supported the cause, then you could take the loyalty oath for the radical Republicans. But if you supported the cause in any way, you couldn't take that oath. So if you're engaged in actual combat at one point, no, well, but these people were slaves. So would that mean a conscript wasn't really supportive of the cause, so they weren't really behind the Union? Well, we wouldn't say that. They're out there fighting. They're out there doing what the Union tells them, so they're supporting the Union. Well, would these people then be supporting the Confederacy? You see, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you can't say one one thing one way and one thing the other way and have it work. So either they're going to be black Confederates, maybe not soldiers by definition of the time, even though nowadays we would call what they were doing as soldiering. And they even said it themselves in one case. There was a slave that called himself a soldier during the war. <laughs> but Levin uh, conveniently brushes that aside. Well, no, 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 no. He does this all throughout the book. The next part. Page 30, he's talking about discipline. While re uh, regulations for the Army of the Confederate States, published in 1862, stated clearly that servants will not be allowed to wear the uniform of any corps of the Army, numerous photographs taken of master and slave during the war demonstrates that this regulation was not strictly enforced. Well, then why would other things be strictly enforced? Why would it be strictly enforced that... Oh, that only whites can serve. Why would that be strictly enforced? I mean, so the inconsistency, well, so what you're admitting is that people skirted the rules all the time. They did it all the time. So why would they do it for one thing but not another? And then he makes this statement. Confederate officers and enlisted men viewed the practice as a means of reinforcing their own military rank or social position. No note. He just drops the bomb. It's like drive-by. I'm going to go ahead and drop a statement here that I have no support, no evidence, but I'm going to say this is a definitive statement. He does this throughout the book over and over and over again. It's tiring. It's tiring. Photographs of camp slaves standing rigid with eyes forward reflected their master's moral character and ability to maintain discipline and their own sense of honor. Again, how does he know this? Is there a letter that says this? Is there a letter from... A, from somebody saying this is exactly why we took a picture this way, or is it because that's how you had to stand for pictures in the 19th century? I don't know, Kevin. Maybe it's because that's how you had to stand for pictures in the 19th century. I mean, everybody looked like that. This is the stupid stuff you get in this book. It's This book is garbage. 
From the beginning, it's garbage. The research is garbage. The conclusions are garbage. It's absolute garbage. It's stupid is what it is. Now, chapter 2, Camp Slaves on the Battlefield. Page 39. The very question of whether enslaved people could be made into soldiers serves as a reminder that camp servants, cooks, musicians, or others attached to the army were not recognized as such. Okay. Um, now, I understand the Confederate government did not recognize them as such, and even, so, even the, the men in the army didn't recognize them necessarily as soldiers, but we know, see, he leaves out a lot of things here in this book. He doesn't really address Holt Collier, for example. He doesn't really address any of Bedford Forest people that were with him. He doesn't address any of that. Not much, right? He, he could have made, if this was going to be a definitive book, where he's going to go after and take out all these myths. He should have addressed all of that. But he conveniently leaves all that stuff out so he can have a polemic at the end where he attacks neo-Confederates. Again, this is why this book is very bad from the beginning. The title makes you think this is going to be the definitive book on black Confederates. He's going to go out and find all these things. He's going to prove all these neo-Confederates. Because that's what the book is about. All these neo-Confederates wrong. These people didn't exist. They're all made up. It's all based on semantics, you find out. He even admits it. Page 42, his reference to slain Yankees, this is from a slave, suggests that he wanted to his first battlefield experience to confirm some level of identification with his master and the rest of the unit. But there is no indication that Stephen viewed his battlefield exploits as reflective of any kind of loyalty to the Confederacy or unwavering fidelity to his master. The letter in question, if you go back and read it, he's pretty, pretty firm in <laughs> that he's proud of what they were doing and killing Yankees. How do we know he didn't believe that? See, you can't believe this. There's no way. I mean, to Levin, who's ideologically driven, there's no way slaves and white Southerners and black Southerners could have any kind of relationship that wasn't based on violence. There's no way that blacks could have had any type of uh, recognition of the cause with their, with their masters. There's no way. That couldn't have happened. But we know throughout history, this kind of stuff happened all the time. You had slaves identifying with the cause of the masters. You had it all the time, all throughout history. Yet, Levin doesn't think that can actually happen. You see, because he's clouded by his own ideology. He's clouded by his own preconceived notions of what Southern society is and what it wasn't. This is the real problem with the book. Page 43. The camp slave of one Confederate general informed his family he had also experienced battle and heard the buzz bullets whiz. The retreat of the enemy provided an opportunity to collect discarded clothes, blankets, overcoats, and razors, but he chose to close by inquiring, quote, um, how the others were doing, uh, how, the other, how, how other blacks do to stay at home while we soldiers are having such a good time is more than I can tell. So he called himself a soldier. Now, Levin says this, the reference to himself as a soldier may also have been intended as a way to enhance his reputation back home as well as his sense, own sense of self-worth and purpose while attached to the army. Now, again, think of what he just said there. The sentence to himself as a soldier may also have been intended. There's no evidence of this. Levin's just dropping another drive-by. This is what I think about it. As a historian, you're supposed to have evidence of these statements. If you're going to make a statement like that, then you better be able to prove it. Otherwise, he thought of himself as a soldier. That's it. End of story. That's the only thing you can say. But no, no, no. So even where the evidence goes in a direction that Levin doesn't want, he makes sure he brings it back to his side. 
This is what I think about it. And it's a bad conclusion. Then he says this on page 44. Next page. Their contributions certainly result in the deaths of Union soldiers. These being slaves, Confederate slaves. But their motivation beyond the coercive nature of slavery is difficult to discern. Well, then why would you even make a case that they're not... How would, how would you know? If you don't know them, why would you make some of the statements you make? That, no, 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 that's not what they thought. They didn't think this. They didn't think that either. Well, essentially, they're doing Confederate work as, as black Confederates, so they're Confederates. So it's not really a myth, is it, Levin? It's not, it's not really a myth. I've already talked about the, uh, the first Louisiana Native Guard. And yes, there is a photograph that's a fraud. Even on the Abbeville Institute, that photograph was there not to illustrate that was the Louisiana Guard, but to show there's a whole lot of fraud going on here. Okay, That's why that photo was used at the Abbeville Institute. He says this, These men eventually formed the first Louisiana Native Guard on May 29, 1861, but despite parading through the streets with weapons and uniforms that they secured with personal funds, well, that means they had weapons and uniforms, so they were essentially Confederates, their service proved to be short lived owing to legislation that limited membership in the state militia to free white males capable of bearing arms. What he does, what he leaves out, and see, this is all the secondary, he doesn't research anything. As Shane Anderson's pointed out, yeah, that happened. There was a law passed that only white people could be in the militia. The same language that was there when this unit was formed, because that law had been passed in 1853, so all of the militia units were disbanded, and this unit reformed the very next day. Okay, so... He makes it seem like, this is his drive-by, that, well, these people were, were disbanded because of race, but that's not it. Because they weren't even supposed to, ban, to be formed in the first place. Because the law was already on the books that only white people can be militia. Page 46. Despite claims that persist to this day, the men who appeared on company muster rolls and received pay for their services were usually not acknowledged as Confederate soldiers with military rank. This is the straw man, right? So, uh, nobody, I mean, yeah, okay, so they weren't soldiers. They were not acknowledged as Confederate soldiers of military rank. Does that mean that they weren't black Confederates, though? Right? So you're, you're adding the soldier part to the end with military rank. No one would say a camp servant is a soldier with military rank. He's not a private or a corporal or a sergeant. None of that. None of it. Now, but he is a Confederate. If he's doing work for the Confederacy, that makes him... And let me, let me just say this. I just pulled up this definition. This is dictionary.com, right? Soldier, a person who serves in an army, a person engaged in military service. Are they are they in military service? Um maybe. I mean they're they're doing soldierly things. They even say that at times. Even Levin says they're doing soldierly things. So are they soldiers? I don't know. He says this, numerous, uh, page 50, numerous civilians observing long columns of black men being marched off as prisoners to Frederick, Maryland. The question of how to treat and classify black prisoners taken at Gettysburg and elsewhere occupied the attention of officials at places like Fort McHenry in Baltimore. Prisoners were soon given the opportunity. Listen to, listen to the way he phrases this. Prisoners. These are prisoners. These are blacks who were marched to Union prisons. <laughs> okay. Good, righteous Yankees here, rounding up blacks, sending them to Union prisons. Prisoners were soon given the opportunity 
to work as cooks for union regiments, join new black union regiments, or work as laborers and teamsters for the government. Many took advantage of these opportunities. Sounds like a great opportunity. Hey, we see you're a slave in the Confederacy. You're going to be a slave to us now. You can either go die as a soldier, or you can serve as a cook, or you can be a teamster, or you can be a laborer for the government, digging earthworks and other things. Or if you're wearing the gray like at Camp Douglas, we'll shoot you. Because that happened to two. <laughs> so, I mean, think about what you say. Well, this is the opportunity. Look what you get to do. You get to work as a laborer for us. But you're not working as a slave for the Confederacy anymore. Now you're a slave for the Union. Hoorah! Now, is that not one of the most idiotic statements anybody's ever made? It's stupid. But he doesn't see it as stupid because he's blinded by ideology. He says six black prisoners managed to escape. Why would they escape from Fort McHenry? Why would they escape such benign, loving, caring, compassionate unionists? Why would they escape this stuff? Because it was an opportunity. Why would they escape an opportunity like that? Why would they do that? Oh my gosh. What are these people thinking? The, the union is embracing them. Why would they escape? Page 51, while Cummings eventually fell into Union hands, George met with an even more unfortunate end. While making his way along an escape route, he was mistakenly identified as a Confederate soldier and shot by a Yankee patrol, perhaps because he was wearing a uniform. Here's a slave trying to escape into the South, and he's shot and killed by a Union. Now, if you think about it, the guy's black, so supposedly he shouldn't be shot because he's black. That would be, I mean, these people are contraband. You don't, you don't shoot the slaves. This guy is shot and killed. Maybe he's wearing a Confederate uniform. Nobody knows. Maybe that's why. I don't know, but he's wearing one. So, but he's not really a black Confederate. No, no. Nope, nope. He's just a slave. You see? Then this, page 52. Slaves like Moses, who, for whatever reason were committed to their masters, made do with the limited resources available, and resigned themselves in the end to passing on their master's parting words to their grieving families. It sounds like, for whatever reason, I mean, we can't figure this out, uh, but I mean, this guy obviously was dedicated to something, but for whatever reason, I mean, he's just a, he's stupid, I guess. And with the resources he had, I mean, he just resigned himself. Well, I guess I got to do this. Maybe he was actually dedicated to it. You ever think of that? Levine? Oh, I mean, Levin. These men chose not to escape, and there can be little doubt that these, these stories conveyed convey evidence of strong bonds between master and slave. But the tendency to frame them around the narrow motif, motif of unwavering loyalty fa fails to capture other factors that may have influenced their behavior. So even when the evidence shows that Levin is wrong, oh, but, I mean, we don't know. We don't know why they were doing this. We don't know. Well, you certainly make statements that you don't know anything about, but you have definitive statements on other things. I would have loved to have been in a seminar with this paper or been on a been on an actual committee that would have read this thing because I would love to have him in front of me and just blast him over these things. But again, I don't have interviews, so that's why I'm doing this here. And then this, the reported tears of camp slaves like uh, Kinson can certainly be interpreted as a sign of grief and loss, but it is unlikely that they were intended for his fallen master alone. Well, how do we know that? Again, you're making a drive-by. We know that Booker T. Washington talked about crying 
for the loss of family members when he was a slave. That's not mentioned. Well, why would this not happen? These people are people. And there's, there's, I mean, this is a complex situation, but Levin can't get out of his own ideological way to figure this out. This is the real problem. Page 54. The experience of seeing slave, slaves braving the battlefield may have been comforting on one level, but it may have just as likely have per, uh, been perceived as a threat to their master's cultural worldview, given the importance of Southern notions of honor and masculinity that white men took with them to war. Well, again, here's a drive-by statement with no evidence. There's no note. There's no nothing. Nothing. He just says this. Well, how do we know that's the case? They should have said, if you're going to make a statement like that, you better back it up with some evidence. No evidence, just a statement. Just drops it, shoots it, drops it, and drives on and on. I mean, it's a drive-by statement. It's ridiculous. Observing their servants' uniform and on the battlefield engaged in actions that may have had no resemblance to anything witnessed back home threatened to collapse the slave owner's understanding of a racial hierarchy that they had been raised to uphold and defend. This may be why Confederates took advantage of opportunities to ridicule slaves' behavior on the battlefield once the bullets started flying. Again, no evidence. And no evidence for the other thing. Just no evidence. He just throws these statements out there. Yeah, I could do... And I, I, I only highlighted some... This was throughout the entire book. He does this kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. Uh, page 76. Chapman included a number of what appear to be camp slaves in the background, all of whom work without supervision. This was common, but to, to Levin, that seems strange. Slaves work without supervision all the time in the South. There they are. They're just out there working. We don't have to stand over them, lording over them, hectoring over them. Do this, do this, do this. This is what they, in, this is what they envision it's like. But these people are working without... First of all, Conrad Wise Chapman painted Veduta, you know, these view paintings. And he would just paint what he saw. This is an idyllic. This is what he saw. This is what was actually going on. He didn't make this up. This is what it was. So, what's... I mean, this is what he saw when he painted it, so obviously this is what was there. But no, 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 not to Levin. No, no, he has to make this up. The lost cause is all lies. I am telling the truth as I make up statements that I have no evidence of. Both reinforced for their audiences the central lost cause tenet that slaves knew their place in the army and were not the least bit concerned with opportunities to seize their freedom. Again, how do we know that? Uh, they performed a wide range of roles, but they were not remembered as having served as soldiers. Okay, I mean, these are the, again, it's semantics. He said, well, not remember, there weren't soldiers, but what does that term actually mean? Uh, he brings in uh, Booker T. Washington at one point. Oh, one thing he does mention is the abuse that slaves, and this is earlier on, that slaves would be whipped and other things for, for uh, insubordination. If you go back and look at, and this is all before 1862, by the way, but if you go back and look at the Union Army and what the punishments for insubordination and other things, they're pretty brutal. Whipping, which was banned in 1862 but still happened. Branding, a death for insubordination, desertion, all kinds of things. These are the punishments in the Union Army. So what's the difference, Levin? You're making it out again, a false dichotomy. The slaves were treated to this, but nobody else was. Well, of course they were. So this is it was a much more violent atmosphere, but in the army itself, things violence was the norm. 
page 114, despite the attempt on the part of some neo-Confederate community to today highlight these pensions as evidence that free and enslaved blacks fought as soldiers for the Confederacy, it is clear that the, free, the five states that in, uh, instituted changes to include black men believed they were providing state aid to former body servants or camp slaves. Okay, but they were Confederates. Again, he's using soldiers as the semantic straw man. Okay, the semantic straw man. Um, he says something about Earl Iams, who actually Earl Iams presented at the Abbeville Institute one time at their summer school. He says this, Though Iams had yet to publish anything on the subject in a reputable scholarly journal, this is funny to me. I mean, I laughed out loud when I read that because until this book, until this book, Levin really hadn't published anything other than on a website. But yet, he's going to blast Earl Iams for not producing anything in a, but in a scholarly journal or anything. He, you know, Earl Iams doesn't produce any. This is, this is Levin's fallback. Well, I've written a book. Again, I've written a book that's peer-reviewed in a, in a university press. What have you written? I don't know, more books than you and that sell more copies than you and done more than you, but that's okay. I mean, all I have is a podcast. So, you know, this is the thing. He also uh, blasts um, anybody that thinks that writes uh, that there were somehow black Confederates. This just isn't the case. Um, Gates, for example, who's a you know, Ivy League professor, says that uh, there were black Confederates. He says, that's, that's not why. Um, there's, there's other people. He said, this isn't true. He doesn't go out and look at anything. He doesn't do any research. So you've got this guy running around saying there's black Confederates that aren't there. Right? So, I mean, this is, this is, if you go to the conclusion of the book, the last thing he says, page 183, I said 177, 183 pages, excuse me. Page 183. The proposal by Burns and Chumley suggests that the mythical black Confederate narrative will continue to be embraced by those who believe it will serve their agenda, or maybe those who attack it to serve their agenda, to deny blacks a, a part of history, right? Why are you denying history, Levin? Why are you doing that? Why are you denying, why are you denying black Americans their history? I want to know that, why you're doing it. Why? I mean, what's the agenda here, Levin? I mean, what are you afraid of? If there actually were black Confederates, if there were black people that supported the Confederacy in any way, what's wrong with that? If there were slaves that actually identified with their master's cause, what's wrong with that? Isn't that real reconciliation? Isn't that a way forward to actually heal racial wounds? What you're actually doing is not that. You're trying to create fissures and rifts. Isn't that what you're doing? Isn't the whole point of saying, well, look, I mean, there were these things. This was complex. There were things out here. Isn't that a reconciliationist message? It's not saying that there were people that didn't like it, that tried to run away, that did things. Of course, anyone with a brain recognizes that. Not to discount anything that somebody did in service of the union. No, it's not to discount that at all. It's just to say there's a complexity. This is what Gates is doing from Harvard. Well, wait about, wait a second here. If you're denying this, you're denying history. And if you're really interested in black history, wouldn't you want to have the whole story? Wouldn't that be the useful thing to do? No amount of contrary evidence or careful historical interpretation will likely persuade them otherwise. This is, I laughed at that too, because he doesn't have any careful historical interpretation. It's all secondary sources and no real primary research other than going out and looking at pensions and who these people were and saying, well, this guy was a camp slave. He wasn't a soldier. 
okay, well, I mean, um, all right, gee, you got us. He was he still was he still proudly a Confederate? Yeah. So what's the difference? Come on. This is just where this is all stupid. Ultimately, the battle over the memory of the black Confederate soldier is one small part of a much larger conversation about the meaning and legacy of our civil war that Americans will continue to debate. Disagreements over the place of African Americans within the Confederate war effort and the larger civil war are about more than how we understand history. These disagreements point to the extent to which we are willing to face some of the toughest questions about what was at stake for our 4 million slave people as well as the nation between 1861 and 1865. In the end, an army of black Confederate soldiers never came to the aid of the Confederacy, but free and formerly enslaved African Americans did join the United States Army and ultimately helped to destroy the slaveholders' rebellion. You see, what Levin is basically admitting in this last paragraph of the book, this really isn't about the history. If it's about the history, then you just talk, well, these people said they were soldiers, there were blacks supporting the Confederacy. It's not really about history, though. It's about a polemic. And Levin says it. It's about how we understand our passes, what we say about Confederate monuments and Confederate symbols and the Confederacy today. That's what it's all about. You see, that's where this book is not really a work of history. It's an op-ed of 183 pages without much research. That's primary in nature. Secondary, yeah, with a padded bibliography. There's my review of Kevin Levin's book. There I read it. Uh, I read it a long time ago, but I had to go through and make these little notes here uh, so that I could speak on these things because it was time for a McClanahan slaughter, and that's what this was. All right, I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 